Good morning. The scripture reading for this morning coming from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But there is no resurrection of the dead, and not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he, that he raised Christ. And he did not raise it if it is true that the dead are not raised. Of course, the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Corinthians had believed that Jesus rose from the dead, just like scriptures had said that he would. That had been an important part of the gospel, as the Apostle Paul had first preached it to them, and it had been a gospel that they had, in fact, received. The problem was, just like most people in their world, from their background at that time, they were just not sure that they rise from the dead. But Paul said, not being sure that you'll rise from the dead is the same as not believing that Jesus rose. Because resurrection wasn't just some last great sign of Jesus' identity. It's the promise to and the hope of all who belong to Jesus. Some in Corinth doubted that. And honestly, lots of us do too. Because how else could we describe the uncertainty, the anxiety, the fear that we all live with when it comes to the topic of death? Why else do we as Christians flat out refuse to make a will? Even knowing, perhaps even having seen the hardship that's going to create for our loved ones after we're done. Why else do we refuse to even discuss the topic of death? As though it's too horrifying, too awful for us to even engage in calm conversation about it. If we had hope of the resurrection, why would we strap our loved ones to machines to keep their hearts beating long after there is no hope of recovery? If we had hope of the resurrection, why would we have fierce Bible class debates about whether or not it's okay to be cremated? Or whether we're going to know each other when we get into eternity or not. Now, would any of us say we don't believe Jesus rose from the dead? Of course not. But why then is it so hard for us to say goodbye? Or, maybe away from the direct topic of death, how often do we make God's priority? secondary to our own 
How often do we say, well, we'll do it if we have the time? We'll do it if it's We have to sacrifice. If we have to reorganize, or heaven forbid, there's some risk involved, you might as well just forget. We'll pack it up. That's a pitiful way to live. That's not what Jesus wants for us. That's not what he died, was buried, and rose to bring us. You guys know I like a good t shirt. I saw one online one time that said, if Christianity is boring, you're doing it wrong. And it occurs to me that maybe part of the way we're doing it wrong comes to this issue of the hope of the resurrection. Because it's not just believing that Jesus rose. It's knowing that we'll rise too. Just listen to how the Apostle Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruit of those who fall on the For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and that is coming. Those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted. Who put all things in subjection under him? When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him. He put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. To understand this scripture, I'm going to start from the assumption that we all here believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, that's why you're here. That's why you're here now. Not just to worship him as the risen Savior, but you're here on a Sunday morning, because on a Sunday morning, his tomb was found empty. He was first proclaimed as alive. So if we believe that, hear what Jesus and his apostles say to us. They say to us that that reality of resurrection, that's not just him. He, as the risen Savior, is the first fruits. Now you and I, most of us aren't farmers, so that terminology might be a little unfamiliar to us. In Paul's context, that refers to an early sample of the crop that let the farmer know ahead of time what quality of crop he might expect in the season to come. So it is that Jesus' resurrection not only tells us who he is as the Son of God, as the victorious King who's triumphed over sin and death, but according to Paul, the resurrection of Jesus also tells us who we are and who we are going to be. 
if we belong to. Now, if we hear what the Spirit's inspiring Paul to say here, it starts to put a different lens on some really familiar stories from the Bible. Namely, those accounts of Jesus' resurrection. Because believing that his tomb was empty, that people saw him, that Thomas reached out and touched him, is an important part of it. We can look at the apostles' testimony. We can see how over decades they stuck to that same story, even when threatened and arrested, even when martyred. So believing that that actually happened, seeing the impact that that's had on the world, that is crucial to us being Christians. Yet what Paul says here is that we can't say we believe he did that and not believe we'll do that. In fact, Paul says that's core to the gospel. That just as the first man, Adam, had sin that brought death to all of humanity, Jesus, through what he's done, brings life to all of us. So when we see how real Jesus was at his resurrection, when we see the joy that he brought at his resurrection, then we get to see that and know that's what he's going to do for us too. That's what we have to look forward to as well. But that's not always where we position God when talking about death. I find we're much more likely to blame him for it, right? Now sometimes that blame has real angry, grief-stricken tenor. God, why did you take them from me? Sometimes it's a little sweeter. We're trying to comfort. Oh dear, don't you know? God just needed them more than we did. And we mean well with those sorts of things. Is that the gospel though? Is that the good news of Jesus Christ that apostles like Paul were inspired to proclaim? Because when I hear the good news they proclaim, what I hear is that Jesus defeated death. When I hear the good news they proclaim, I hear that Jesus is coming to destroy death. And my sense of God is he's not somebody who destroys good things. I find that he doesn't usually come to defeat things that are what he wants for us. So when we realize that, appreciate that gives you permission to grieve. You can feel a little angry. You can be sad when confronted with death because he is. That's not what he wanted for us. But that does challenge us then to stop being angry at him for it. And also not to be angry at each other for it. Because that happens a lot too, right? How many times have you seen families splinter after a loved one passes away? Or how many times do we see it play out where a human medical team has truly done everything that they can and we still lose the person? But the survivors, grief-stricken though they are, still just want to blame somebody, they want a lawsuit, just something, because someone has to be to blame for death. And we're hurting. Yet as followers of Jesus, he shows us where the blame really lies. It lies with sin. 
All of humanity's sin and the toll that it's taken on the world. But Jesus, he defeated sin. He defeated death through his death, burial, and resurrection. And he assures us that he is coming back to take care of it once and for all. So that means for you and I right now as people that belong to Jesus, we get to move forward. We hurt. Sometimes terribly. But we don't have to get stuck. Because Jesus reigns. Because Jesus is coming. And things will change. Our life doesn't end in that painful place. Which sounds great. But how? How exactly is this business of the dead being raised going to work? Well, funny you should ask, because that's the next thing Paul talks about. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 35, he continues, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a, a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he is chosen. And each kind of seed is own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star and glory, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also were those who were of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of so we mentioned before, but this idea that dead bodies are going to get up with new life, that was a minority view. Most Gentiles in this day and age thought that that was absolutely crazy. If they believed in an afterlife at all, it was as an otherworldly shade floating around the underworld. Certainly not a bodily existence. And in fact, not even all Jewish people believed in a bodily resurrection. But those who did believe that the dead would rise did so because they believed Scripture. They believed in God's power and what His Word promised. And Paul, learned man that he was, <coughs> thought that that made perfect sense. So much so that he drew on familiar Everyday comparisons to show how much sense it made. He said this resurrection, it's like 
planting a seed. What pops out of the ground is not in the same form as when you put it into the ground. That plant, though, came from the seed, but it fundamentally changed. It's not that you put the seed in the ground and then a plant just floats out of it and goes somewhere else, leaving the seed behind. It's that the seed itself was transformed. And that shouldn't be surprising to us as people who believe in God that he's able to do that. Because whether you're talking about plants or animals or birds or fish or people, there are all these different kinds of bodies that God is able to make. Just like you look up in the sky and you see the sun, the moon, the stars, there all these bright lights, but each of them is a different, unique sort of body. And Paul says that's what the resurrection is like. That when our bodies are planted, we're literally dead and buried. We're like a seed. We're the starting point. Where we're one kind of body, but God's going to change it into something else, just like Jesus. Because the good news is not that Jesus' body was still lying in the tomb while his spirit floated around and said hi to the apostles. It was that same body. The gospel writers, the apostles, went to great lengths to stress. Jesus' body got out of that grave transformed. You could touch him. He ate in front of them. You could even still see the marks of his crucifixion. Yet he had been transformed. He was glorious. Though we need to clear up some of Paul's wording here. Because what we think when we hear what he says is different from what he would have meant in the original Greek. Because Paul uses the words natural and spiritual differently than we use. You see, we think like Star Wars, how Obi-Wan Kenobi became a shimmering force ghost, much different than Luke Skywalker, who at that time, in the real Star Wars movies, was what Yoda referred to as only made up of crude matter. Or we think like Looney Tunes, when some extreme act of violence by a wascally wack causes Elmer Fudd's physical demise. And he becomes an angel. His spirit leaves his body. He's given wings, a halo, and heart, and he floats up on a cloud. Those sorts of ideas are entertaining, but they're inaccurate. The Greek words that Paul uses here are not referring to what we're made of. They're referring to what makes us alive. For example, if I fell down up front right now and Lewis or Megan ran to my aid, how could they check to see if I was still alive? Go for my pulse, right? They could run up and they could check my pulse. If my heart is still beating, there's still some natural life in me, isn't there? But will my heart always be beating? It won't be, will Because natural life, it runs out. Time is limited. There'll come a day where my heart doesn't work as well as it does now. It'll start having problems, and eventually, my heart will stop. And when my heart stops beating, I'm not alive anymore. My natural life has ended. But when Jesus comes, it won't be a pulse. 
that says I'm alive. I'll be alive by God's Holy Spirit. He'll be what animates me. He'll be what makes me alive. And He's eternal. I'll be sharing in God's life which never runs down, which never runs out. That's what God has wanted for us since he first created Adam and put him in a garden with access to a tree of life. He wants us to share in his life, but sin and death kept us from that. But now, thanks to Jesus, who has always shared in God's life, I can finally experience it too. If I belong to if I'm indwelt by His Spirit, if I live by that Spirit and become more and more like Jesus now, then when Jesus comes, He's going to complete that transformation. You see, we don't become angels when we die. And while when we die, our spirits do go to be with the Lord, that's not the end of the story. We go to rest with the Lord. We're asleep in Jesus, but we're waiting. We're waiting for Jesus to come. We're waiting for Jesus to come and to destroy death. We're waiting for Jesus to come and to raise us with him. And that is the moment when everything changes. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood do not inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised and perishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is Swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus is coming to do. Sometimes we as Christians even get so worried about the end times and we throw around words like rapture and antichrist and Armageddon. But this, this is our hope. Because Jesus died, was buried, and rose. Because we obeyed that good news that he's king when we gave our loyalty to him, putting our faith in him. Because we died to ourselves and our sins and we're buried within a baptism and are living a new life in the Spirit. Then if we die before Jesus comes, we'll rise. And if we are alive to see Him coming, we'll be changed. We'll be changed to be like Jesus. We're still us. Just like Jesus was still Himself. And he knew who he was. He knew his family and friends and they knew him. So when we wonder, well, will we know each other in eternity? Well, if Jesus is the first fruits and he knew his friends, I think we can put that question to bed. 
That's what resurrection does. It's still you, but changed. Changed to be imperishable, immortal. No longer living by a beating heart, but by a life-giving spirit. Death swallowed up by life. And that was always God's plan. He, Paul quotes here from Isaiah and Hosea that had been 700 years before. So then if that is our hope of rising from the dead, if resurrection is our hope as Christians, is it okay to be cremated? Scripture doesn't discuss. And I know this will come as a shock to some of you, what I'm about to say, but it's true nonetheless. If Scripture doesn't clearly say, that makes it an opinion. That means we have liberty. Me personally, I want a headstone. You know why I want a headstone? I want a Bible verse about resurrection on that puppy. And I want everybody that walks by for a long time to still have the gospel proclaimed, even if it's just in a little sentence. But that's my personal opinion. If a Christian were to die in a house fire, or better yet, if a Christian were burnt at the stake for their faith, would they miss the resurrection? Of course not. So if you decide to get cremated, I say it's fine. However it is that Jesus swallows up death and eternal life, nothing's going to be able to stop because that's our hope, not to become some disconnected, disembodied shade floating around in the world. That's what the pagans hope. The Christian hope is to be changed into something that is more real. Living in God's presence in the new heavens and the new earth when creation has been set free from its bondage to corruption. And that hope means something right now. Because when Paul concludes his discussion of this, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The reason that we need to understand resurrection it's not so that we can police the comment section on people's obituaries. Oh, no, no, they're not an angel. That's not correct. The Bible teaches something different. It's not so that we're ready for the next time 1 Corinthians pops up at the South Carolina Bible Bowl. The reason that we need to understand, to really understand how the dead will be changed then is so that it can change the way we live right now. Because if I really, truly have the hope of the resurrection, I am able to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So what might that look like? What might that look like for me to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord when one of my loved ones is dying? It looks like not being afraid to walk into that room and sit with that person. It looks like holding their hand and staying with them and loving. 
It looks like being the person in the room because you love Jesus that gets the family praying when folks might be quickly. It means getting folks, even folks that have it dark in the door of a church from here, singing Jesus loves me or amazing grace so that room gets filled with the beauty of the Lord. And he's reading scriptures. Like John 11, when Jesus by Lazarus' tomb says, I am the resurrection of life. Or John 14, where he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I go to prepare a place for you. We're reading 1 Thessalonians 4 about how the dead in Christ will rise. And Paul tells us to encourage each other with these words. Or Revelation 21 and 22, where we get to hear the beauty of what it will be like to be in God's presence. Where when God himself wipes away everything from our eyes. And when that loved one passes and family members start arguing over how the arrangements are going to be made or siblings start quarreling over how the inheritance is going to get split up, your focus isn't going to be on the tit for tat and your focus is not going to be on getting what you deserve. Your focus is going to be on how you're going to abound in the work of the Lord. Because you have hope that's bigger than memorial service. You have hope that's bigger than an earthly inheritance. You have the hope of the resurrection. And you are going to be steadfast and movable and always abound in the work of the Lord, even in the most painful moments. And what about as we get older, as we start to have health issues, what does it look like when our health is the one that's declining and we are steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord? Now, I acknowledge it's easy for me to say this in my late 30s, but this is my aspiration and has been for a few years, and I say it publicly to hold me accountable to. When we reach a point that these two have got to come to me and say, Dad, I don't think you should drive anymore. My aspiration is to hand them the keys and say, Great, would you mind taking me to the grocery store? I've got a doctor's appointment next week. Could you take me? If Christ is going to subject himself to the Father, if they get to a point where they're like, Dad, we want to take care of you, but you just need more than we can do. I want to be so much like Jesus in that moment that I say, all right, we'll make sure the local congregation's got a portable baptistry because we're about to get a lot of those old folks united with Jesus. I'm going to go make some new friends, and they're going to be sharing the gospel all up and down those halls. Steadfast. Immovable. Always abound in the work of the Lord. But what about when life gets scary? What about when there's a pandemic that makes us afraid to gather as a church or when there's acts of violence being perpetrated out in the world that make us afraid to step outside our doors? What about when we need to sacrifice? When we need to give some things up? When we need to reorganize some things? Hope of the resurrection makes me brave. Because if I am truly living each day trying to do what Jesus wants, then it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. It doesn't matter what anyone else does. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. It doesn't even matter if I should lose my life. If I am doing it for Jesus, truly, sincerely seeking to serve Him, I can be set back and move always abounding in the work of the Lord because I know my labor is not in vain in Him. And how about when we set our priorities? A lot of you know this even better than I do. The years go by quick. I can remember shortly after Rachel was born, I had a business mentor tell me, 
The nights are long, but the years are short. When you're not sleeping through the night, that feels like it lasts forever. Or when you're trying to potty train them, you wonder, is this ever going to be over? And then all of a sudden they're up. They're 21. They're 40. They're 60. Nights are long, but the years are short. But if I'm steadfast, if I'm immovable, if I'm always abandoning the work of the Lord, then I know anything that I do, anything that we do as a family to live by the Spirit, to help each member of the family in what precious little time we have together to be more like Jesus, then we're not limited by how quickly time goes by. Every time that I say, you know what, we're busy, but we're going to pray. Every time I say, you know what, we're busy, but we're going to sing as a family. Yeah, we're busy, but we're going to go out and serve together. Yeah, we're busy, but we're going to read some scripture. Yeah, we're busy, but we are going to go worship God. Every time I am focused on living by the Spirit, every time I recognize I am stressed but I messed up, so I need to apologize to that spouse or those children. I need to confess my shortcomings and ask for their forgiveness. Every time that we reprioritize and say we love going to the movies, but we ain't going to go see that because there's just no way we can glorify God by doing that. Any time I set my mind to living by the Spirit now, I am setting my family at liberty so we're not just limited to how many days we've got as short as they are. We've got all of eternity to love and live together in God's presence. That is what the hope of the resurrection does for me. But what if your loved ones don't belong to Jesus? What if your loved ones don't have the hope of the resurrection? Well, you better get to work. It's time to move past our anxieties and our fears and our distractions. It's time to live as people that are so full of hope that those family members, that those neighbors, that those co-workers and friends look at us and they want to know the reason for the hope that's in us. And the answer to that is Jesus.